0: Amen. You can be seated, and if you have your Bible, please turn in it today to Romans chapter 13 as we keep on working through the book of Romans. We're looking today at Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. And just a reminder that as we have come to this section, uh, it's playing out what it said in Romans 12, 1, that we uh, we need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Says in the next verse that we need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds rather than conformed to this present age. And as part of that, he's spoken of our obligations uh, within the church to love one another, to use our spiritual giftings for the benefit of the church. He's spoken of the ways that we need to be forgiving as as we've been forgiven in Christ, and the way that we need to not avenge uh, ourselves for anything, but to leave it up to the wrath of God. And now he's spoken in chapter 13 of the ways that uh, the government is supposed to function, but not just the way that the government is supposed to function, but the ways that we as Christians who are under human authorities and human authority structures are supposed to regard that as something that is for our good and not for our harm, something that God put in place for the peace and good order of society so that in all things we should be obedient except those things in which we would be asked to disobey Christ. That's kind of the context of where we are, and then in that context, and it's important for us to remember that context as we come to this verse, we come to verse 8, where it says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. By the way, this is one of those sermons today where I may I I think I'm probably gonna end up splitting it in half. So that's the privilege that I get as the guy who's usually in the pulpit every week. I can come up and say, I think I gotta split this. So but if I don't, then we'll see. So we're, we're in for a surprise of some sort, I suppose. But where we are, uh, we, I want to read you, I already said kind of what the, the context was leading up to it, but I want to read you this specific verse that was the last one before we came to this, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And then we say, oh no one anything except to love one another. Let's start thinking first of all about this, because there's kind of two aspects to where we're going to see today is, is both our personal obligations that we have and how we need to seek to free up those obligations so that we can love effectively, but also what that love looks like. So that's where we are, is that we need to love and we need to free ourselves up to be able to love, but also what does love look like and maybe even what does that have to do with the verses that came before about the government and about it being for our good and not for our harm. So let's see first of all in verse 8 at the beginning that we have this debt of love and other debts. The first thing it says, owe no one anything except to love each other. Or it says, owe no one anything. The first thing we need to know here is that we are to As Christians, we're to pay all of our unpaid debts and all of our unpaid obligations. Owe no one anything. Now, owe no one what? Well, he said right before that, pay taxes to whom taxes are owed. Pay revenue to whom revenue is owed. Pay honor to whom honor is owed. Pay respect to whom respect is owed. Christians. Don't let yourself get enslaved by unpaid debts and unpaid obligations. If you promised to do something, you're obligated to do it. If you owe money, you are obligated to pay it. Now, does this mean, where it says, owe no one anything, there are some Christians over the ages who have taken that to mean If you're really a Christian, if you're really following after God, then you can never incur any kind of debt. I don't think that that's what that means. And part of the reason that we know that that's actually not what that means is because in places like Luke 6.35, Jesus commands us that we should lend, that we as Christians should be willing to lend. And so if it were against God's moral law for us to ever borrow anything, then it would also be against God's moral law for us to ever help someone in the borrowing of anything doesn 't mean that it 's also kind of absurd because the moment that you walk up to the grocery counter with your groceries, you owe the money that you owe for those groceries, and you need to pay it. If it was impossible to ever uh, or if it was possible to ever not owe anyone to anything, then you would never do business with anyone or have any kind of commerce. It just wouldn't work. So he's not saying that you can't have a mortgage. He's not saying that it is necessarily sin to take out a bank loan or something like that. But here's the principle. The principle is where you have debts that need to be paid that we need to make a priority to pay those. And do that in a timely manner. And where we have obligations of things that need to be done, we need to do those things that we're obligated to do and to do them in a timely manner. Here's the rest of that verse where I mentioned in Luke 6.35 that Jesus says that we can lend. Here's the whole verse. He says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Hmm. There's a command here for us to be imitating God in his goodness and in his mercy. And the way that we're going to be freed up to do that kind of an imitation of God and his goodness and mercy is if we first say, I need to be free from the debts and obligations that are hanging over my head that are preventing me from showing those kinds of merciful, merciful actions and, and attitudes toward others. Now what, what, what should you do when it says, Oh no one anything? Well, pay your debts in a timely manner. Pay them in full. Whether we're talking about loans that we owe to the bank, whether we're talking about taxes that we owe to the government, whether you're talking about money that you owe to a relative, boy, that's sticky. Whether you're talking about payments that we owe to a business or wages that we owe to an employee or to somebody that you've hired to work in your home or wherever else. When we when we owe and we're not paying there's a kind of enslavement that's brought from that. It says this in Proverbs 22:7: 7, The borrower is the slave of the lender. The borrower is the slave of the lender. You know the way that it changes a relationship. Many of you know, I, I guess I should say. If you have a friend or a relative, and then you borrow money from them, or they borrow money from you, that's a tough spot to be in. Because, you know, certainly the, so, so often what happens is that one person will say to the other, boy, I, I love this person, I want to help them out. But then the next thing you know, there's, there's starting to be a pattern of hiding behaviors from each other and sort of skirting around each other. Because if you're the guy who owes your relative money, you don't want him to know that you went out to eat at Applebee's when you could have used that 20 bucks for your dinner to help pay your debt. And it just brings in that difficulty. And so where we have those debts that are owed, it's hanging over our heads. Now, what practically can you do? Now, I'm I'm not going to lay out for you today principles of exactly how to uh, do your budget if you're in a, a difficult debt situation or something like that. But there's a great book that does that. And I want to recommend it to you, and we went through it on Sunday afternoons earlier this year. It's called Money, Debt, and Finances by Jim Neuheiser, who is a biblical counseling professor uh, at Reformed Theological Seminary and also one of the founders of the uh, Fire Association of Churches that we're part of. And it's a fantastic book, and it will give you both a principle of the theology of work and finances and money that's presented in Scripture, as well as some very, very practical advice where you say to yourself, I do owe someone something, what am I going to do? Uh, and, and even some sample budgets that are laid out there. So just again, Money, Debt, and Finances by Jim Newheiser. If you're finding yourself in that situation where you say, wait a second, it says, oh, no, one anything, uh-oh, I do, what am I going to do about it? I really encourage you to look there. I know there's also some other Christian financial gurus out there as well, some better than others, but I'll just recommend that book for now. But it's not just money either when it says owe no one anything. You may owe someone a book you borrowed. I bet there's a few of those out there right now. You may owe someone an apology. And it may be humiliating to think of giving that apology. That's kind of part of what an apology is. You may owe someone a thank you. You may owe someone a favor. Now, when I say you may owe someone a favor, I'm not saying that you are free to be the kind of person who keeps track of who owes you a favor. Don't do that. If you've got a mental ledger of who it is that owes you an apology, who it is that owes you a thank you, who it is that owes you a favor, that's ugly stuff. You, you, you need. If that's the case, if you have in your mind a mental ledger Maybe even as you look around at this room, this person didn't thank me. This person didn't apologize to me. I did something for this person, and they didn't do a favor in return. Before the day is out, I would say maybe even before you sit down to eat lunch, get on your knees, open up Ephesians 4, where at the end of the chapter, it's going to tell you the command of what to do with that. Forgiving others as God in Christ forgave you. And take your mental ledger of who owes you what as far as favors and obligations and thank yous and apologies and lay that down at the foot of the cross and look up at Jesus who died, who died to forgive you of all of your unsaid apologies and all of your unsaid thank yous and all of your undone favors and all of your offenses against the holy God and who in his blood has forgiven you. Trust in this Jesus Trust in him, and as you trust in him, forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you. Don't say to yourself, I am going to withhold my love for another because they owe me love first. Don't do that. That's ungodliness. But what we should do, we should obey what this command has said. We should owe no one anything. One more kind of thing that you you may owe. I just want to say this. I have absolutely no idea whether there's anybody in this room who's in this position. You may owe a debt to society. There may be an unsolved crime of a case that's still open, that they're looking for the guy who did it or the lady who did it. And you may say to yourself, that was 25 years ago. That was before I came to faith in Christ. I'm a new person now. It would affect the people I love. And yet, the Bible says here, owe no one anything except to love one another. If you're a new person in Christ, part of the way that that's going to play out is that you would go and confess and pay your debt to society. I say that partly because you never know who may be in that position, Partly because you never know who's going to need to counsel with somebody in that position as well. We need to know that. Also, if you're a student, you owe the completion of your school assignments. If you are an employee, you owe good, dedicated, hard work for the hours that you are at work. We have all kinds of obligations that we owe. And so what this is saying is don't let those things be hanging over your head Because what they're going to do if you've got all of these debts, obligations, these things unpaid, what they're going to do is they're going to hinder your ability to love one another as you ought to. That's the connection that it makes here. Owe no one anything except to love each other. If you are trapped in financial debt and you are not responsibly working to pay that down in a financial way, I guarantee you that that has prevented you from loving others in ways that you could. It's prevented you from giving to the church generously. It has prevented you from giving to the poor generously. It has prevented you from giving to the mission of sending the gospel around the world generously. And from other ways that you could have used those finances, not just to say, well, I'm in a comfortable position, but to love one another. If if you are in a position where you're continually just trying to catch up with the obligations that you're already under, now I know that there are some times of life that are just harder, where you've got more on your to-do list than others. But if we're if we're not being um, self-controlled in the way that we would plan our time, in the way that we would uh, go about fulfilling those obligations, it's not just that you're going to get to the end of your day and feel bad that you didn't get your to-do list done. There's also a part of that where we're prevented from loving others in the way that we would if we would fulfill our obligations and then move on to this love. And here's what it says, though. I'm not not saying that to crush you. I'm not saying that to crush you because your schedule is hard and your budget is hard. I'm saying that because the Bible tells us here, take whatever it is, these, these things that are that are holding you back because you owe this and you owe that and you haven't done this and you haven't done that, take care of that for the purpose of this, the unmet, always unpaid debt of loving one another, and that's the next thing it says is that we need to keep love on our to-do list and consider love to be a debt that's never paid off it says except to love each other. What is that talking about? Well, love is what you always owe. Love is what we always owe, and when it says one another, it seems to be speaking not just about those who are our closest neighbors and those who are our uh, fellow believers, although usually one another is talking about fellow believers. This seems to be in the context of even our, our far-off neighbors, even the... the uh, Uh, The person that you may find on the side of the road, as, as Jesus spoke of in the parable of the Good Samaritan. As we wake up each morning, we ought to know the number one obligation and debt that God has given me is to love. Obviously, first of all, to love God, but also flowing from that to love our neighbor. It's always our duty to love. It's a debt that's never paid off, and it's a debt... Get this, it's never painful to repay. Now, occasionally there are times when you're hesitant to show love in certain ways because you're worried that it might be painful. You're worried that the, the person that you show love toward might respond in a way of hatred. That can happen. You're, you're worried that it would be difficult in various ways to show love toward someone. But it's never painful to pay. And you'll never regret having self-sacrificially loved another. Robert Haldane, who, who wrote personally my favorite right now commentary on the book of Romans, he said this, The more that they pay of this debt, the richer will they be in the thing that is paid. Or to put it in the words of the preschool teachers where my kids went to preschool, Love is something when you give it away, you end up having more. Here's the thing that you owe to one another is to love one another, and the more that you love one another, you're not going to run out of love like you run out of money. You're going to grow in your love as you keep on paying more and more of that love. Here here is the reason that we need to take care of those other debts and obligations is so that they won't get in the the way of paying our sincere love to God and to others. Now, let's consider the relation of this to the law. Well, that seems like a sharp turn, doesn't it? It's not. Because when we say, love one another, what does that look like? We need to know what that looks like. And the world around us has all kinds of ideas of what love is. And they express that in these pithy little statements that are absolutely false and And uh, destructive like love is love is love is love and those of us who know what they're talking about by that we need to know that that is wrong what they're talking about as love is a breaking of love as it's about to be listed out here in verse 9 the kind of love that we're talking about is a kind of love that is a fulfillment of the law of god he says at the end of verse 8 Uh, The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We're on point two on the back of your bulletin, if you're wondering. And as we go through point two, you're going to need the back of your bulletin a little bit more. All right? So I encourage you to look there and maybe be taking some notes as we go along. What does it mean when he says, "Love" or The one who loves another has fulfilled the law? I want to mention, first of all, what it does not mean. It does not mean that if you are good at loving others or that if you pour your efforts into loving others, that that's something that would make you right with God. You cannot be right with God by your love. How do I know that? Well, because of this. Romans 3, verse 20. By works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Or as it says in Romans ten four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's saying, here's what love looks like. It's keeping the commandments, keeping the law. But when he says the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, do not take that to mean if I can just prove to myself and to God that I have enough love then my sins will be forgiven. Guys, our love for others does not forgive our sins. God's love for us in Christ is what forgives our sins. This verse is not talking about gaining a right standing with God. It's talking about what obedience to God's commands looks like. If we want to be in full obedience to the good rules of our good God who has loved us, and who has demonstrated that love and that Christ died for us while we were still sinners, if we want to obey him in full, then what that looks like is to walk in love and to love one another. It's not going to be until we receive the love of God in Christ that we're able to do this in the way that it's speaking of either. It's not until you come to faith in Jesus that you come to understand what love is. It says in 1 John 3.16, by this we know what love is, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, it says. That's how we know love. That's how we're able to show love is by knowing the love of Christ. It says also in 1 John, we love because God first loved us. My sin debt has been paid. And now that my sin debt has been paid, now that I no longer owe the debt to God of my eternally serious sin to him that was punishable by an eternity of eternal conscious torment. It's been paid for on the cross, now I'm free. Just like you can say in in worldly terms, once you've paid off what you owe to the credit card company, you're going to be a lot more able to love your neighbor with your finances We can say in a much bigger, fuller, freer way, my sin debt has been paid. And now I'm free to love God, and I'm free to love my neighbor. I'm free to walk in the law of love. So there's some principles about law and some principles about love that he lays out here. Verse 9 says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal You shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think what we're going to do is we're going to get into some of the specifics of those commandments and what it is that God requires of us in those commandments next week. So today, we're going to just think more about these general principles of the law of God that are being laid out here in connection to what love looks like. All right? One thing to know is this. The gospel does not end God's moral law. The gospel does not end God's moral law. Now we just said that where it says love is the filling of the law, one who loves another has fulfilled the law, that they can't possibly be about our being right with God by loving because it is the gospel, the fact that Jesus has died for sinners and that he counts us as righteous in his sight, by faith alone, that's the gospel, that's the good news of what God has done for us. Sometimes Christians can get mixed up about the the various ways that the Bible uses the word law, and they can think, well, if I trust in Jesus, now I'm forgiven and therefore there are no more rules. I can now live however I feel like, and that's just simply not the case. Some would even say, oh, well, no, you can't live however you feel like, but there's not really any rules we can point at that are still the rules of God because, well, the law is all fulfilled and gone, and therefore there's there's just nothing left for us to walk in. Well, that's not the case either. When the gospel came in Jesus Christ, when he died for our sins and rose from the dead, he didn't get rid of the fact that God still has an eternal standard for what is right and what is wrong. What he did is he freed us up to start obeying God. And the way that that standard is laid out is in the Ten Commandments. And I say that not to say that those Ten Commandments are the only things that God says about what's right and wrong. But those commandments are presented to us in Scripture as something that are unique and set apart They're the only commands that God speaks out loud to all of the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. They're the only commands that he scratches into, or however he did it, that he wrote on those tablets of stone. The only commands, out of all the commands that he gave on Mount Sinai, that he had Moses put into the Ark of the Covenant. And to have that blood sprinkled on top of it on the mercy seat to symbolize that we need the blood of Christ to come between God's judgment and our breaking of his moral law. These commands were set apart by God, and they summarize God's eternal moral law. The coming of the gospel didn't mean you no longer need to keep the commandment, you shall not covet. Or it didn't mean that you no longer need to keep the commandment, you shall not murder. Now, as we talk about this, there's a difference. The reason I'm talking about the Ten Commandments, if I didn't say verse 9 starts listing them. He lists four of them specifically. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And then he says any other commandment. And so there's something here that he's saying about the the Ten Commandments, or sometimes we call them the Decalogue, if you want to use a fancy word and impress your friends, the Decalogue. When, When we say that these Ten Commandments, that they summarize the moral law of God... There's a difference between, you guys want another fancy term? All right, I'm going to give you fancy terms. The moral law and positive law. Ooh, you like that one, huh? Write that down. Impress your friends. Positive law. What are we talking about? Another way that you could put that is eternal law and temporary law. All right? Now, lest you think that I'm a moral relativist in saying that, that God has temporary laws, We all know that there are temporary laws for certain times and situations. If you're a parent, maybe you can relate to, to what we do in our family. When our kids are little, we tell them as soon as we get out of the van in a parking lot, we say, you have to hold my hand while we walk through this parking lot because cars drive here. But as they get a little older, maybe when they get about eight or nine, or I don't know exactly, we start to recognize this child has grown and matured enough that I trust that I don't have to hold their hand as we walk through the parking lot. That rule is no longer necessary. It was a temporary rule for a specific situation. We know that in the rules of the land that we live in. In New Jersey, can you turn right on red? Yes, you can. New York is a little different situation. And even in New Jersey, maybe you come up to a light, and, and there's a sign beside it that says, no, right, turn on red. For that situation, it's necessary. Maybe you come up to a sign that says a whole paragraph about when you can and can't turn right on red. And by the time you get done reading the paragraph and trying to figure out where you fall in the paragraph, it's turned green anyway, and so it doesn't matter. Because there's these different times and situations where different rules are necessary. Now, there were those that were positive laws, the temporary laws that God gave in the Old Testament for what we call Theocratic Israel, the nation of Israel operating under, uh, under God as, the, you know, as his people, as his national people within the world, they had certain laws that are no longer in place once Christ has come. They had ceremonial laws like circumcision and animal sacrifices. They had civil laws like having a city of refuge to flee to if somebody caused an accident that killed another person. And those are things that passed away when Christ rose from the dead and poured out his spirit, and he redefined his people as no longer a nation that's made up of the descendants of Abraham, but now as a spiritual nation of every tribe and tongue and nation spread out throughout the world. So there's not any need any longer for the ceremonial laws like animal sacrifices, because they were all just shadows pointing forward to the fact that Jesus would come and be sacrificed. Now that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, you don't have to kill a lamb at the Passover time anymore. And, and now that we are no longer in theocratic Israel, but we are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation uh, spread across many nations, we were once not a people, but now we are his people called out of darkness into his marvelous light, we don't have to say, well, here's a city of refuge to flee to. We can say we follow after God and with the various uh, civil laws of the nations that we live in. Even in the New Testament, there's temporary laws, positive law. I'll give you an example, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Did you know that after Christ comes, after we're raised from the dead, we're living in the new Jerusalem, we're not going to be baptizing anybody. But that's not going to be because we're going to look back and say, boy, baptism sure was bad. No, it's because it's for this age. And we're not going to be taking the Lord's Supper because it says in in 1 Corinthians 11 in the Lord's Supper that we proclaim his death until he comes. And so the commandment that he gave us, do this in remembrance of me, is positive law. It's, It's not the eternal moral law. It's something that's in place for a time and a situation which is our Savior has risen from the dead, he's in heaven, and we're here waiting to go to heaven and be at his banqueting table with him. That's what it is. But God also has an eternal moral law, and that is summarized in the Ten Commandments. It seems to have been written something about this moral law on every human heart, all the way from Adam all the way down to each and every one of us. You can see that those moral laws, even before the Ten Commandments were spoken aloud at Mount Sinai, that in the chapters that come before that in the Old Testament, that they all, ten, seem to be in place. All ten seem to be in place now. And so God has moral standards for each one of us that he will judge us by. As we think about that law also, I want you to notice that all of the commandments that he lists in verse 9 are out of the second half of the Ten Commandments. Now, if you're if you're following, are you following along in your bulletin, oh, you need to today. Okay. The two tables of the law. All right. When we say two tables of the law, we're saying that in the 10 commandments, there's the first half, which is the first four commandments. They have to do with love for God. And then there's the second table, which is the last six commandments that have to do with love for neighbor. Now, that doesn't mean that love of God has nothing to do with love of neighbor. doesn't mean that love of neighbor has nothing to do with love of God, but it's just the way that God has laid them out for us. You have those first four where he says, you shall have no other gods before me, where he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. The third commandment where he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The fourth commandment where he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those all have to do with our relationship with God. But then he gets to others. Honor your father and your mother. That's one that's not mentioned in verse 9, but it is mentioned indirectly in all the the verses of Romans 13 that came before this. Where he is mentioning being submissive to the authorities that God put over us. And then you have, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, which is one that he doesn't list in verse 9, but it's still in place. And you have, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife or male servant or anything that is your neighbor's as the 10th commandment. You see the way that it's, it's divided up there. You've got those things that have to do with our relationship with God, those things that have to do with our relationship with others. And what he's bringing out here in connection to loving others is what we call the second table of the law. Okay, if if I lost you for a while here, come back right now, okay? How do you love others? By keeping God's commandments about loving others. What does it look like to truly keep God's commandments about your relationship with others? Well, it looks like love. We are called to love one another and to do it in the way that God has commanded. And as we look at each one of these commandments, there's three different ways that God uses it. He uses You want to know an easy way to memorize this? And you want to know... Who came up with this? Judy Evans. Thank you, Judy. MRI. Okay? So if you're, if you're on your outline, you're like, oh, man, what is wrong with the pastor today? Go, go to point two, part D, where it says the three uses of the law, and write these three letters. M-R-I. Okay? What that stands for is Mirror, Restraint, and Instruction. As we look at verse 9, and we see, for example, the command, you shall not steal. One of the things that the Bible tells us that the command, you shall not steal, is going to do is it's going to be a mirror on our own hearts and lives about where we have stolen. Where we have taken what did not belong to us, or sought to do that. That's because it says in Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin." It's going to be a mirror, and it's going to be showing us the fact that we need to be forgiven by Christ. Even as we look at these commands and we say, this is how I'm going to love others, these commands are also going to show us, this is how I have failed to love others. And we need Jesus to forgive us. Another thing that it does, there's M-R-I, the R is for restraint. The law helps to hold back the sins that we might commit. This is especially in places like Romans Thirteen, verse 3 that we were in last week where it says rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Part of the reason that people don't murder each other more than they do is because there's a law that says you shall not murder and there is a threat of punishment for what would happen if you murder and the law of God even where people don't recognize that God exists is throughout the world right now restraining evil to a great degree that we may not realize until we're in eternity. So there's a mirror, there's a restraint, but there's also this, the I, the MRI, the instruction. For us who know Christ, the law shows us not just here's where you've broken it, here's what not to do, but also here is how you should live and walk in the footsteps of love after the pattern of Jesus Christ. It shows us our own souls, it restrains us, it instructs us. Those are those three uses of the law. They go way back in church history, and they're so helpful as we look at God's rules. But I also want us just to think before we before we wrap up today about how all of this relates to what came before in chapter thirteen with governments. He he told us that God put governments in place for our peace, for our order, to reward good behavior, to punish bad behavior. Well, where do you see that? behavior laid out, well, in the law of God. And especially in the moral law of God. And especially in the second table of the law of God. Where he's explaining this, he's showing that those rules that have to do with how we interact with other human beings are part of what God has done to set up order and peace in our society. I think it's instructive that he only lists... Uh, commandments from that, that second half of the Ten Commandments here where he's connected this to the, the function of governments in, in promoting what is good that's what governments are for governments are there to keep us from killing each other and to keep us from stealing from each other and, and to keep us from, even though it doesn't say it here from bearing false witness against each other to restrain those kinds of evil. And some would say, well, maybe governments are also there to require people to worship the right God. But I just don't think it says that here. There doesn't seem to be any indication, even, even in the laws that God laid out for all mankind in Genesis 9 to be enforced after the flood. doesn't seem to be any indication that there needs to be something like a blasphemy law. But there is God's moral law. that says. Here's what the third commandment says that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And as our Baptist Catechism explains that, that though the one who takes his name in vain may escape punishment from men, yet the Lord our God will not suffer him to escape his righteous judgment. There doesn't need to be a blasphemy law, but we do need to be preaching that God will hold accountable all of those who take the Lord's name in vain. If you want to know all that that has I've preached a sermon on what it means to take the Lord's name in vain, you can look it up. all right? But, you know, part of it, too, you never have any indication in the New Testament that the apostles or that the churches of the New Testament sensed any need, whether in explicit command or in the examples of what they did, they never seem to have felt the need to go to government leaders and say, You need to set up an anti idolatry law, and you need to set up an anti blasphemy law. No, but they did do things like, Hey, Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your father's wife. Or was it his brother's wife? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Denise. So you see there that there seems to be that need to enforce those love-one-another kinds of relationships. Now you say to yourself, well, the government can't make us love one another. That's true. The government cannot make us love one another. And that's where we're going to go next week, is in the positive, I shouldn't say positive, in the, the command, in the instructive command for us as Christians to move forward in love in ways that the world doesn't know how to do. But what the government can do is that they can restrain the outworking of hatred toward one another. And that's a good role and good that God has given us the blessing of having those in place who would reward what is good and who would punish what is evil in terms of those one another kinds of commands. But let me just quickly say this. I'm going to have to save most of this for next week. But God's love... Summarizes God's commands. And the love that He calls us to have for others summarizes God's commands. That's why when Jesus was asked, What's the greatest commandment? He says, Here's number one love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself. And then what He said about this is, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. One way that you could think about it is, Jesus was saying, Hey, Obey the first four commandments, love God. Obey the last six commandments, love your neighbor. But all of this is summed up in love, and God's commandments explain love. If you want to know what love looks like, it looks like obedience to God's commandments. And if you want to know what obedience to God's commandments looks like, it looks like love. Owe no one anything except to love one another we'll pick up next week and go through some of these specific commandments that are here and see how exceedingly broad these commandments are and see how they ought to instruct us as christians to move forward in love but thank god that he has loved us while we were yet sinners and so i hope today that you'd look to the cross of jesus christ and say to yourself because christ has loved me i want to love others I want to love others by first letting go of their debt toward me, forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven me. I want to love others in pursuing to be free of those debts and obligations that are holding me back from doing it. And I want to love others according to the commands of God that he's laid out in the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that you would first of all work in the hearts of those who may be here who hate you. Lord, they may not acknowledge that they hate you, but, Father, they have shown their hatred of you in their sin and in their perpetual refusal to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, I pray that that statement would take hold of their hearts. I pray that the Spirit would take the gospel of Jesus Christ and convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment, but also show them the path by which they can have eternal life, that Jesus has come out of love and, for God-haters, to turn us and to save us by his grace. God, I thank you that he took the debt that he didn't owe, our eternal sin debt on himself, and paid it in full so that we're now free to love you and to love others and to come to you and to have forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Jesus Christ. Lord, we've talked today about some things having to do with your law the moral law, the positive law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, the first and second table of the law, the three uses of the law. And, Lord, this is, Lord, I just pray that you would work by your Spirit not to help us just to sort through those categories. Lord, we, we want to have hearts that are tuned to your Scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would move your people this week and today to open up our Bibles and to see what you've told us in your law And to love it and to love you and to obey because you first loved us in Christ. God, I pray that you would give us joy in paying this continually unpaid debt that we owe of loving one another. God, open our eyes to our family members. Open our eyes to our church members. Lord, open our eyes to our neighbors. Lord, give us the joy of paying that unpaid debt of love toward one another.